Hello and welcome to an all-new episode of the Three Bid League podcast. As always, I'm Tyler, joined by my co-host Matt. And today we're just gonna dive into the mailbag on this empty, empty week of games. Just one game Monday through Friday this week. And let's be honest, it doesn't really count. If we can't figure out which division Bowie State is in, is it really a game, Matt? It's not. What a what a disappointing week. I know it's final, so it's important for the student athletes to do a good job in the classroom, but we were just talking about it. I can't remember such a barren week ever in the Atlantic 10, but at least that gives us a chance to just reflect on the good weekend the conference had 13 and two across the board. No bad losses really to speak of. And overall, the conference has been playing pretty well over the last month. Yeah, but above all of that, the biggest win, St. Joe's ending Princeton's undefeated season. And what I remarked was probably the best played A-10 game of the season. I think the other candidates, the other Princeton game against Duquesne was great. Northwestern against Dayton, another super high-level, almost tournament-feeling game. But the A-10 lost both of those. This one, they came through. Yeah, it really did. And I'd agree with you. Princeton impressed me. I missed a lot of the Duquesne game against them, at least the first half. Yeah, that's a legitimate tough team to play against. And if they make it to the tournament again, they're going to they could do some damage. But St. Joe's, I I think what impressed me the most, didn't shoot the ball particularly well and still found other ways to win. And I, I think this kind of gets into one of our great questions. This one from Grant. What's one of the preseason predictions that have already been proven wrong? I, I think we can both hold the L on this one for St. Joe's. They're they're a lot better than each of us expected. And, well, and there's a simple reason to this. Because we talked about the two sides of the ball, and this was supposed to be this transcendent offense that we never believed was going to do was going to meet the expectations. And guess what? It, it really didn't. It's good. It's not spectacular by any means, but what I think we could have never, ever seen coming. I flat out scoffed at the notion that this team was going to be great on defense. I saw the metrics for the first month and I still didn't fully believe it. I assumed it was going to come back to earth. This is the game that officially sold me. And the funniest part is there's no like great all defensive caliber guy on the perimeter. Maybe Lynn Greer, who's an absolute pest, but it's just a bunch of really athletic and really fast dudes who are playing their asses off. And when you have a bunch of guys who fit all of those qualities, it it's hard for a guy like Eric Reynolds to be a, a bad defender if he simply just tries. He's trying hard. So are both of the Browns. Sean Simmons in like the five minutes he's in the game is a beast. They got two forwards constantly and Klawczyk and Finkley, who are good defenders. And the biggest part, I, I think it's time to elevate Rashir Fleming into the vaunted Holmes-Clark-Rose zone of the elite top-of-the-line defenders in this conference. That guy, it, if Deron Holmes didn't exist, we'd be going insane about the defensive versatility of Rashir Fleming. I, I agree, and I, this was something Dr. John was talking about at certain points of the game, how Fleming was starting to insert himself into that discussion. At, at this point, through the first 
month and a half of the season almost it it would be he he would be getting robbed if he wasn't on the all defensive team and it kind of blows my mind just looking at the box for him only putting up five points three rebounds and three blocks it, it just felt like he had such a bigger impact than that that didn't really show up and he, he was a big part of causing Princeton to start turning the ball over after the early stages of the game I mean the Tigers really couldn't get anything going at the rim they had to chuck up a ton of threes and I I think Fleming's defense inside was a huge part of that yeah and for anyone who's watched St. Joe's a lot in conference play in the past maybe you're a fan of a different team you haven't seen much of them this year you're probably not still not buying this and I get it and one of the things that I always want to caution against in December is overreacting to things that are happening and happening in non-con that seem completely inconceivable in October. There's the flip side to that. Like one other thing that is a minor thing that I got wrong. I thought Mike Adams woods would just basically be an, an average starter. He clearly looks like an all conference guy, but that's something that on like October 10th, we could have seen as a realistic possibility. We could have never seen St. Joe's having the best defensive efficiency per Ken Palm in the A-10. And I I know I personally last year put so much stock into what Obina was doing for them defensively, him and Klawcheck together. And in hindsight, you realize it's because this team was so pathetic those first few Lang years and even the last Martelli year on that end that just any semblance of good defense and rim protection seemed like a miracle. Now you watch Fleming and you realize like Obina was a great rim protector who was completely useless the entire rest of the defensive floor. Fleming's a great rim protector who's also protecting the three line. Like this is the difference between like Obina was essentially collegiate Rudy Gobert and Fleming is doing Victor, Victor Wembenyama things. That's the difference there. Like Fleming, he blocked, I think two jump shots in that game. It was absurd. Mm-hmm. And I think the craziest thing, too, like it's not Fleming's a lot better than we were both expecting, although we saw a little bit of that last year. And it's not in short spurts, but I think what is crazy, the one thing we did agree on with St. Joe's is that if they were going to be good, it it was going to be because Crease the Sonico blew up. And other than playing pretty well against Kentucky, he's been a non-factor this year just because he's been hurt. He wasn't even in the Villanova or Princeton win. So hopefully he gets back from his toe injury soon, and maybe this isn't even the final form for the Hawks. Although I think we would both have to say you can't let him getting a lot of playing time come at the expense of Fleming just with how good he's been. So maybe you find a way to play them together or just limit Priest's minutes, but they're still going to have to keep Fleming out there a lot. Yeah, well, Fleming is basically what everyone thought the higher-end version of Priest would have been. Like, this is the guy that was being hyped up at the end of last year as being the savior of St. Joe's defense. It just happened to be their other center. And that's it's kind of terrifying to think about if Priest gets to gets back and gets to like 65% of his potential this year. Holy hell. Like other than the fact that one team has a potential all American, if Creased is good, that's a center combo that blows the other 13 teams away at that position. Yeah. 
And I, I mean, I think right now, too, we need to talk about it. And unfortunately, it's I have a feeling it's going to continue getting brought up as a discussion point. Man, that Texas A&M Commerce loss just looks worse and worse when you realize the potential of this team. And they just got their first vote in the AP poll this past week. I, I would imagine for the first time since their 2016 tournament season. I mean, if they win that game, they're probably ranked right now the way they're playing, or at least they're right on the doorstep. If you went back and watched the Commerce game, went away for 20 minutes, and then watched the second half of Princeton, you'd think you'd suffered a head injury in between. Yeah. That, that And as we kind of talk about St. Joe's going forward, I think one thing we got to tuck away, the offense still kind of hasn't fully found itself. They're still chucking up threes. And I know, I know the Hawk Talk guys made a mention on not their – it was either their last part of the, the one right before. I don't know. Those guys are firing them out like crazy right now. Go listen to them. But they noted that St. Joe's isn't as three-point happy as they have been in the past. And I guess that's technically true. But in the middle of the second half, I went and screenshotted their Ken Palm page because it felt like things were shifting in that Princeton game. And at the time, they were fifth in the country in percentage of field goal attempts as three-pointers. And they were 16th to last in free throw rate that second half they were attacking and they have two different guys in eric reynolds and xavier brown who are eric reynolds might be just the flat out the best slasher in this league xavier brown is already in the top 20 he's an upper echelon elite rim attacker already as a freshman and if they decide to play their offense through those two hitting the paint hard in those crazy Lynn Greer post-ups on tiny point guards and just let things work inside out from there. This could be a team that could potentially have a top four defense and top four offense at the same time. And we'll, we'll, I guess we'll probably get into this a little bit in some of the mailbag questions, but to me, it's just plain and simple. They are a bona fide contender to now, if they don't finish in the top four, it's actually a disappointment of a season. And maybe you disagree. I think it's them, Dayton, Duquesne in some order. Assuming that either St. Bonaventure or VCU will kick it up the half a notch to notch needed to come join them. And then everyone else is just either a wild card or a no con- or a non-contender. Yeah, I'd agree with the top three. I mean, Bonaventure just blowing out three of their upstate New York rivals, which I don't think either of us expected them to win all three of those. They're starting to play much better. They still really haven't beaten anybody good. So their Florida Atlantic game over the weekend upcoming is going to say a lot. But yeah, I mean, I to go to your first point, I think it would be disappointing for St. Joe's not to finish top four. But Going back to the original question of this, because I know I have at least one more answer. Are there any other preseason predictions you just want to throw out that you know are wrong right now? There's some I'm wavering on. Like my the the shelters on Will Richardson Island have taken like a hurricane level bashing here. But it's it's honestly been so rough that I'm not even willing to sell the stock there. Layola's not a double buy team. I'm still higher on them than most, though, so it's not it's not one that I'm going to completely back off on. I mean, a lot of them are just small ones, like Awesome Movis on Bonaventure has been a disappointment so far. He's also shooting three-point ball terribly, and I think that'll start to turn around. But, yeah, it, to me, the major one is just 
not believing that St. Joe's defense, honestly, I think I would have been pretty surprised if they were top half in the league. Now I'd be shocked if they're not top four. Well, I'll just give my my uh, worst pick of the year. Fordham's not going to finish third. And they actually surprised me. I Right when I gave up on them, they had a nice top 100 win against North Texas. But wanted to dive in real quick for my my stat of the day. Uh, I think I would say Fordham had the most unforgivable loss, maybe, of the three-bit league era when they went down against NJIT. And believe it or not, the Fordham Rams own an all-time one and two record against the Highlanders because they lost in the first year of our podcast in December of 2018. So a 53 to 50 barn burner at the Rose Hill gym. This, this wasn't unfamiliar territory. But yeah, it's, it's Fordham just I thought the offense was going to come around. I thought Richardson was going to be a big part of that. They're just they can't shoot. They turn the ball over like crazy. And the defense is still pretty good, but it's not good enough to carry them all the time. It's funny because my stat of the day is also in regards to Fordham being pathetic. If you look at the Ken Palm offensive efficiency metric, the division one average is a 104.3. Your number's bigger than that. You're above average. Rhode Island currently sits at 14th in the A-10. Remember, there are 15 teams in this conference. They're at 105.4, about a point per 100 possessions better than the national average, second to last in the A-10. Fordham is 97.4. They are pathetically awful on that end. They are 154 spots below the next worst offense in the A-10. It's a league of their own. It's really amazing. I, I did want to add to the one time Fordham beat NJIT. December 8th, 2007, NJIT lost 88 to 44. And this was in the middle of an 0 29 season as an independent in Division One. back when there were a lot of independents. It was independents. probably year one for them at that it point. It was year two, but this season, 0 29, it was in the middle of a 51 game losing streak that spanned three seasons. I can't imagine that they actually the the first time they beat Fordham, it was like a 22 win season. NJIT's had a couple good years, even though they've been in like four conferences in the last 10 seasons. But man, I just it's hard to believe how bad some teams can be. Wow, you're not kidding. Also, rest in peace to the Great West Conference. Yeah, Great West. They went from beautiful conference where your automatic bid went, took you to the CIT. Yeah, RIP to the CIT also. Okay, we that, that was about 10 minutes on the first <clears throat> question, but we have a big list. I, I think we can go to the rest of Grant's questions because he had some other good ones. Uh, we can just start out, who is the best front court in the a I I will be honest, I kind of just went with Dayton here because they have, I think, by far the best front court player. But if you're looking at depth, you could go in a couple different directions, I would say. I took this as kind of a response to our perimeter player discussion that where we were talking about the top three. If it's top two, it's Holmes and Santos, and it's not even remotely close. I guess I'd give runner-up status right now to Cohen and Cross at UMass. If Asimovis starts actually making his shots, him and Venning together is probably up there. I think then you get into, like, Duquesne has, like, eight different combinations that are lingering, but they just don't have 
the elite guy. Uh, I, I had another good one off the top of my head that'll come back to me as I'm rambling. Bigelow and Quinn's kind of underrated, I mm-hmm. think, because they have the weird combination of, I think, you know, Quinn's slightly overrated, but Isaiah Bigelow is massively, massively underrated. I would say Quinn is putting up some pretty huge numbers this year. I, I will say he is playing better than last year. I would have yeah, said last definitely year he's, is. he's actually And he's actually rebounding now, too. So Yeah, he, he's, he's good this year. But yeah, yeah it's, that's it's a good one. I'd say Mason, maybe. With oh, Hall that's the other one. Kelly, that's a good one. Yeah, I Keyshawn Hall gets them up close, but Amari Kelly, to me, is still kind of around a league average center. Which is honestly better than better than he showed before his year at Mason. And then another question from Grant. I thought this was interesting, and I had to think about it for a bit. If you could switch one coach to another A10 team, who would you switch? And I actually did this as a a two team trade. I'm not sure if you did the same. No, because I just kind of left the one team to die out in the cold. I I kind of did too. Well, the one team I had. I'm sending Ryan Odom from VCU to Loyola Chicago. I just don't really think VCU has the horses offensively. Like they, they just don't shoot the ball well enough to do what Odom wants, I think. And they're turning the ball over a ton. And I still kind of just think Loyola has a talented roster. They have guys you can shoot. And I, I'd just like to see what Odom could do with that. As for, I guess I'm sending Valentine to VCU. And I, I just wonder like the last after a year and a half, I know they're playing better right now, but I don't know. I'm not sure if he can win with this type of roster and maybe just having a little bit more length and athleticism, kind of like speedier guys in the front court compared to the more, I don't know. I just think like a Delican Welch, Alston, it's more of like a bulkier, like physical team. So maybe something else would, would work better. I had two possible ones here. And it's tough because I feel like Loyola is the only team that where their talent is really truly underperforming right now. Like a lot of the other talented teams, like you can say maybe Bonnie's have, are underperforming a little bit, but is that going to be any better with someone who's not named Mark Schmidt? Probably not. And I was trying to figure out the right spot for Dunphy. I couldn't find it. The The lesser one for me is if you throw Chris Mooney on Loyola and actually – discipline this team a little bit get them moving the ball better I think that would really put a spark into their offense but for me the one that came to my head and it's it's kind of a funny one after we just praised them but can you imagine what Archie would do with this talent on offense and I don't I don't even want it to be a trade because I want Billy Lang still there running the defense and communicating with all these guys that he recruited but just let Archie take control of this offense for two months. This could be like an eight or nine seed in the NCAA tournament if that happened. I, what happened to Archie? I, I, I thought Rhode Island was going to be good. Now they're dead last in the net all of a sudden after kind of getting blown out blown out against Charleston. Yeah, what happened I, to Archie is his roster's not that good again. It's I think it's better than last year, but statistically that's, not that's much. A, that's a very low bar to cross. Yeah, he's he's got to get some players at some point. But all right, th- those were all some good questions. How about this? This is kind of similar, I guess. Uh, Mr. Jeans asked us, what's an interconference trade that would help both teams? So now we're talking players. And 
my mind actually went straight back to Loyola. So you can tell I'm just not happy with the way things are running there. I, I would trade. Well, the first guy I thought of for this was Dame Adelican, just because I, I think it's becoming clear that Miles Rubin's going to be the guy and he should get a lot of playing time. He He's probably an all-freshman team player. But I still think Adelican's good enough. I mean, as an all-Ivy League guy last, he could be playing for most state 10 teams. I thought I would send him to Rhode Island for Zeke Montgomery. Kind of think Loyola, they've been playing small lately, and a lot of that has been Alston coming back from injury. But Montgomery gives them some more shooting and a little bit more size, kind of let Watson play more of the two or the three. And I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard it's hard to figure out. It's two good players, but mostly just wanted to get Adelican in a situation where I think he would play a lot more for for the Rams. Yeah, this was a tough one because there just really weren't that many one for one swaps that made sense. There aren't a lot of teams that kind of match up with the right holes to make a deal. I was trying to get Jason Roach over to Duquesne just to give them a shooter off the bench, a veteran backup guard. I was trying to get someone with any offensive talent whatsoever over to Fordham. Um, I was trying to, I was thinking about sending them Christian Winborn because I don't even know how the hell he's going to be in the rotation once he gets back healthy. But he just kind of goes back to their high-volume, low-shooting issues that they have right now. I ended up finding a perfect two-for-one, though. And it's it's the perfect win-now-slash-rebuild trade. It's time for St. Joe's to just go all-in and upgrade that power-forward spot and go get Matt Cross, who would fit in perfectly with these guys as a ball-mover, who can also attack for them, a great rebounder, someone who's going to add to their versatility on defense. You got to give back Casper Klotschak, who does a lot of the same things at just a lower level so that UMass can kind of keep some stability in their front line. But the piece that hurts is you got to give them a sweetener for the future. And that's where you got to sacrifice Sean Simmons, who would instantly become the best young defensive player on this UMass roster that's full of Plenty of other freshman athletes, most of whom are a little bit more offensive geared at this point. I don't know. I think UMass says no deal. They're five and two. Frank's not yelling at the fans. I think they think they can win. So I, I don't know. They this won would the have flagship. to be like a late January trade when they're after when they're things like, start going off the rails. Yeah, when they're like two and five in conference. I'm still mad. How has UMass only played seven games? That's, that's uh, that just weird. Happen. I know, but I, I still don't every, like it. This happens every year to the eight diamond head teams, and you look at the standings, and it just looks like there's an error. I don't like it. I, I guess it makes sense because, yeah, no one else is going to play at all that week pretty much. Also, hey, UMass, please don't do what GW did and have us watching games late at night on Christmas weekend just to watch you finish in dead last in a mediocre MTE. They got to at least win something there. Give us something to look forward to. All right, let's look for a fun question. Uh, how about Mr. Stuntman Marvin, all A-10 best dunker team? I actually, I only came up with three guys that jumped out, so maybe we'll need to work together on this, but I'll let you kick this one off. I had four. Obviously, Deshaun Shepard at LaSalle, Deron Holmes at Dayton, Toby Lawall at VCU, David Dixon at Duquesne. My problem is I can't come up with the the fun dunking small guard. 
I couldn't. So I actually had the same three, and then I left off Deron Holmes just because I I was looking more at guys who like dunking a ton. Yeah, his dunks are all just like so standard. I feel like I mean he's awesome at it, but I I went for guys where like that's their number one skill. So I actually I had Shepard Dixon in the wall. I mean, who was it? Uh, was it Sean Simmons who almost brought the house down and missed an audacious dunk in the Princeton game? He he almost made the team. Yeah, I can't think of who it it's was. It's either him or Finkley. It was one of the two. But uh, I don't know. I guess we just go with those three guys for now, and two more can play their way on. But yeah, I, I, I guess, like, if we're just grabbing a guard, I guess Maximus Edwards, because he does dunk sometimes. There's just not there's not that many right now. No, no. So, someone's going to need to step like, up. We're, we're oh, missing man, that. Dude, like... We need, like, when Duquesne's playing that NAIA school or whatever the hell they are in three weeks, we need Trey Clark to try, like, a 360 in transition. Yeah, I mean, Trey Clark might not be a bad answer right now. He dunks a fair amount, doesn't he? And, hey, and if it got back to him that people were challenging him to be the fun small guard dunker, he would try to do it. Just uh, save it save it for a blowout game, Trey. Yeah, all right. How about... uh? Connor Bailey, one of the hosts of the great Black and Gold fan podcast covering VCU, which middling A10 team or teams by record have the best chance to compete for the top of the A10 in conference play? I, I will tell you the very first thing I thought of, and I still don't know what to say about this. Is Richmond good? I have literally no idea. It feels like their season's heading the exact same way as last year, where they lose to every good team they play, but they keep it respectable, and then they just dominate lesser teams. So I needed to ask you for a different question. After this week where they went 0-2, albeit two on the road to decent teams, do people still think Richmond's good? I don't think anyone thinks Richmond's good except for Ken Palm. No, still there was in this whole top thing top. like two weeks ago where people were trying to make the case that they're like the fourth best team in the league. I guess so, but I still feel like they've been, I don't know, I just don't think anybody knows what to do with them. And they kind of have, like their quality of wins, I mean, really the only decent team they've beaten is UNLV, but it was on flow hoops and so nobody watched it also. They won by 17 on a neutral court. I think Richmond's solid, I just... I see them kind of keeping this up where they're going to win most of the games they're supposed to and lose to the favorites, and they're going to end up around 9-9 nine and nine in the conference. I, I think the answer is VCU right now just because they're not at full strength yet, and they've kind of just done what Richmond's done but against even better opponents for the most part. And it, it's really disappointing. They had a great game against Memphis and kind of missed a chance at the end of regulation to win it. But yeah, I mean, so far VCU's just been in that position where every single difficult game they've played, they've come up a little bit short in the closing minutes of the game. It's VCU. I'm giving no detail because this this question was a setup by Connor. I yeah, like the caveat. A little suspicious. Of, the caveat of by record, like unless you unless you are just fully convinced that either Richmond or Loyola has some special switch that they're going to flip here, then the answer has to be VCU. And I mean, your other options are pretty much Fordham, St. Louis, or Rhode Island. Are you yeah, no, confident you. in any of them? I didn't think so. So yeah, well done, Connor. You got us to admit VCU is 
still pretty good still with some life in them all right let's look at a, a kind of similar question this is from west pine bills which projected lower half team will be the biggest landmine for the contenders in the conference and i actually wasn't 100 percent sure what to do with this do we have a consensus projected lower half because i kind of feel like there's just a like a bottom three that we'll all agree on. And after that, I, I don't really know who else I would say is in that group. It's kind of close. Other than GW, the bottom half in Kempom basically matches the bottom half in the A-10 talk power rankings, which are kind of the only two things we have to go off of right now. So I just looked at that. So it's like, it's some combo of UMass, Fordham, LaSalle, St. Louis, Rhodey, and either Loyola or some some part of the Davidson Loyola GW group. Well, I, I think what I kind of looked at, I mean, really, if we're talking landmines, the way the A10 set up this year, there's really only four landmines by the net, and that's Fordham, LaSalle, St. Louis, and Rhode Island. Like, if you lose to GW, if you lose to Loyola, UMass, right now, that wouldn't kill you. It would be a Q3 game. Yeah, we'll and see. With UMass something that could on Diamond Head. It, yeah, I mean, UMass is going to change the most, probably. And I think they're actually top 100 right now, which I don't expect to continue. But in terms of that bottom four, like teams that could be in the sub 200, I, I know it's kind of the meme, but I think it has to be LaSalle. Just two factors, the the coaching and the guard play, where Brickus and Brantley could go off at any night, and you just know that Dunphy's always going to have a game plan. Otherwise, I, I still, even though I've kind of given up on them, Fordham's defense is the best like individual skill that a really bad team in this league has, where I just think St. Louis and Rhode Island, like they're not particularly great at anything, where Fordham still is such a strong defensive team. And if they get hot like they did for a while in the first half of that two-lane game, Maybe they can scare someone. They're also going to have the best home court advantage out of anybody in the bottom half. So I'd say Fordham or LaSalle scares me the most. I'm I'm definitely the most scared of LaSalle. The weird arena, Dunphy, and just the fact that Brantley, Brickus, and Gill could kill you on any given night. As we talked about last time, one of the elite backcourts in this league and we just know at some point Brantley's going to have a 34 point game in Gola in a conference game against one of the best teams in this league. And they actually play, they play most of the contenders at home this year. They get Dayton there. They get St. Joe's there. They get the Bonnies there. Thank God for Duquesne that for some reason, the PA rivals only play once and that's in Pittsburgh because goal has been a, uh, pretty big house of horrors for the Dukes in the last decade. So they get to avoid that. But yeah, I think they have VCU at home too. Yeah, they do. Like they also have Mason at home. That might be your top six right now. LaSalle gets five of them in Gola. They're definitely winning one of those, if not two. Yeah. I mean, Tom Gola arena, that's where good seasons go to die. And really the only question is whether or not the ESPN plus feed is going to capture it. Because that hasn't always happened in the past. Yeah, good thing so. for all those teams. Most of them play them in January. So okay, it's so there's not still, any kill your. Yeah, it's not college football time, though. It but uh, doesn't as matter as much when you lose though for the eight ton. As soon as yeah, we'll see. 
February 21st. It's a Wednesday night. I'm pretty sure there's better games that day. The Bonnies go to LaSalle. I could see a hot Bonnies team with that game being overshadowed by Dayton George Mason that day. I could see a hot Bonnies team rolling into Gola, the camera flickering off at some point. Kale Beer's causing at least one ear injury as Anwar Gill puts in his 11th bucket of the game and the Bonnies somehow lose. All right, speaking of LaSalle, Gola Boy Rich asked us how many A10 teams will finish the season with 20 plus wins, which this is always a fun question. And I actually forgot, I wanted to check how many teams ended up with 20 last year. Okay, it was six, so not a, not a ton. I feel like it would probably be more this year, but did you have any in mind or do we just want to run through and kind of mark off the ones that still have a chance? Oh, I quick sketched. I did rough projection and the wins won't fully match up because I didn't actually go into the schedules. I just tried to power rank the teams and guesstimate their conference wins. Now I counted a 10 tournament for this. I did. Yeah, I would too. So for me, six get their, at least semi-easily, Dayton, Duquesne, St. Joe's, VCU, St. Bonaventure, George Mason. And yeah, then I, the same. Yep. I have going into the second round of the A-10 tournament, two teams at 19 wins. That is LaSalle and that is GW, who are both 8-2 and two and both GW. Their next three games are, I guess, next two at this point because we're recording. They just finished off Bowie State. So they're 9-2. and two playing two sub-300 teams in their last two non-con games. LaSalle's probably going to get killed by Miami. Then they play a non-D1 team and a sub-300 team. So they'll probably be at 10 wins going into conference play. So all of a sudden, just somewhere around 500 is going to give both those teams a chance. So I think one of those two gets it done that day. We get to seven. I don't know if I GW I could see. I think they're going to get to 11 and 2 and then on con and I could see them winning at least 7 or 8 regular season conference games which gets them right there. I don't know about LaSalle. I, I still kind of see them winning 5 or 6 conference games unless they make another deep run into the A10 tournament. Just don't quite see them getting there as much as I'd love to see it. A couple of the others, did you have a uh, Davidson? in one of your initial groups where did i where are they at right now they're seven and three right now play a non-division one school and then have usc upstate and a neutral site game against ohio which is more or less a coin flip but i feel like they might have a shot assuming they get to at least nine wins in the non-conference and i I could see them winning nine or ten in the league and getting close i mean ken palm has them at 19 he also, they also just have them slightly above my current uh, projection for them. But yeah, they're kind of in that same group. Like there's a whole bunch of teams that it, basically if they can find a way to go 10 and 8, 9 and 9 in conference, they might only have to win one game in Brooklyn. I, I think I'm going to end up saying seven teams get to 20 wins. I don't know, because out of these teams, too, in our initial group, like, I feel good about Dayton, St. Joe's, Duquesne, but, like, between Bonaventure, Mason, Richmond, VC, like, not everyone can win or go over 500. Someone's got a stink for the math to work out, so I, I don't know. 
one of these teams that we're expecting will obviously do it is going to fall short because they go like seven and 11 in the league. I think the toughest part of this question is I start to look at this league. I think there's some good strength at the top where we're going to have like a Dayton or maybe Duquesne or Joe's or the Bonnies win 15, 16 games. Someone else can probably get themselves into the 14, 15 range as well. And then I think the very bottom is stronger than normal. So I got this just giant cluster of teams in like the seven, eight, nine win range. And for most of them, that's not enough. I mean, that is the perfect recipe for two at-large bids. So kind of hope that happens. That would be pretty perfect. And then we just need LaSalle to steal the bid. And that's how we get there this year. That would get them to 20 wins if they did. I would. All right. Speaking of the contenders, a great question from Matt Ryan, the host of the A10 Stats account, which everyone should be checking out after games. Wanted us to give the most exploitable weakness for Dayton, St. Joe's, Duquesne, and St. Bonaventure that the rest of the conference can take advantage of come A10 play. So figure we should just go through these one by one. Uh, we'll start off with Dayton since I think most people would consider them the favorites right now. So and- before we go team by team, I want to jump in with the fact that all of these teams do share one combined weakness, which is an ice cold night from beyond the arc could bury any of them. And they're, they're all scarily similar in this way where St. Bonaventure is 88th in the country in three point attempt rate, which puts them sixth in the a 10. And if you want to consider VCU a core contender along with this group, which I think you potentially can St. Bonaventure shoots the least amount of threes of any of those five teams. And they're still top 100 in the country. Like they all, all of these teams just love to shoot. By the way, the other one is up there is Davidson. Maybe that's why the A10 is having an up year. We're we're embracing modern basketball, and the coaches have figured out three points is more than two. I, I don't know how else you explain it. But now that is a good observation and something I did notice a little bit when diving into these teams. I, I think with Dayton, par- partially just because of the slow tempo they play, it's a little bit more unusual of a profile than some of the other teams. But I think what it comes down to, this Dayton team isn't quite as strong at at scoring at the rim as prior Anthony Grant teams have been. And specifically, it's Deron Holmes, who out of Dayton's key rotation players, he takes the most shots at the rim for the Flyers. And I I think the exploitable weakness is if you do take Deron Holmes out of the game, that team is going to be even more reliant on threes. So if you can have that excellent defensive center, like Duquesne's guys or Fleming for St. Joe's or Venning, I mean, any of these top teams could potentially do it on a given night. If you shut Holmes down, that just puts a ton of pressure on Dayton's guards. That's the obvious answer. The reason why it becomes so tough to exploit is no one's successfully done it yet. We saw Northwestern do a pretty good job in the first half. It's probably the best of anyone so far. But I mean, even, Houston just kind of destroyed everybody. Yeah, every, yeah, but they also might just win the damn national title. Yeah. That team is incredible. So even in the games where we've seen the 10 to 12-minute stretches where teams have been really successful in slowing him down, it's been met with someone else being hot, whether it's Elvis or Santos or Brea. 
they've been able to carry the offense because of a, a great three-point shooting performance. If someone, I'll use Duquesne as the example because they just have so many bodies to get into a, a rock fight, some sort of maybe even hack a Holmes, although he's shooting 80% from the line this year, which is just bravo to him. But all these big guys to throw at him, if they're just dropping doubles and just saying, hey, Javon Bennett, we're going to let you take 10 threes tonight and beat us. And it remains to be seen if the Dayton guards can do that for a full 40 minutes. I got goosebumps when you said Javon Bennett take 10 threes. I don't know if I want to see that. It's going to happen. There will be a game in conference. Oh, it has happened this year. Where someone is just going to outright decide that if Javon Bennett and Kobe Elvis get hot, that Dayton will win without question. And if they don't, then that team might beat them. Well, so, Kobe Elvis is starting to come around shooting the ball. He had a huge game against Troy over the weekend. I feel like we've been talking St. Joe's a lot, so I'll throw you a bone. Let's go to Duquesne, and you've watched them a lot more. I actually, I probably had the most trouble because you look at the Ken Palm page, there's a lot of green. It feels like it's a pretty well-rounded team overall for the Dukes. Well, so now that they figured out how to actually defensive rebound at a non-disgusting rate this year, their biggest weakness is one that's actually not exploitable and is kind of one that's more born out of chance. And it's what we saw in the Nebraska game, where Kareem Rozier is so aggressive on defense, and Trey Clark is so aggressive in probably every single thing he does in his entire life. And... If you get a night with a tight, rough whistle and those two get buried on the bench, this team is immediately falls into a lot of trouble. And they have the flexibility to give them proper rest along with Grant, whether it's going double drama, playing three bigs, and they're about to get Williams and Mahorchich back. So they're going to go three bigs even more. They just got Horonsky back. That's a whole nother option in the backcourt, but I think any game where, say, Kareem Rozier all of a sudden has to play 18 minutes because of foul trouble, they're going to struggle to adapt to that for a full duration of of the game. The one that is kind of exploitable, they're still just giving up a lot of good looks off the dribble from three. And it was a problem last year, too. And it's something that's gotten a little bit better this year, but they'll give good one-on-one players good looks from deep. And I think the one kind of specific one I look at is St. Joe's where the way to really hurt Duquesne on defense this year is the way that Eric Reynolds has been playing the first month and a half of the season. Yeah, that's true. I would say for the uh, first point about foul trouble, at an individual player level, I think that's probably it if you can get the guards out. Although, for the most part, Rozier's done a much better job this year. And that Nebraska game is the only time he got the four fouls in a game. I think for Duquesne, more than the other three-point shooting happy teams, just keeping them off the three-point line is important. They take uh, about 44% of their shots as three-pointers, and a lot of them, too. Uh, only 74%, which isn't much at a national level or assisted. So they're taking a lot of threes off the dribble. And mostly that would be, I'm assuming Grant and Clark taking those shots. But if you can just shut those guys down and not let them get those shots off, I'm just not as confident in Duquesne's bigs 
as offensive players like Dixon, Barre, Williams, once he's back, I, I think of them just a lot more as defensive specialists. So I, I think compared to the other teams at the top of this discussion, if you make those guys beat you offensively, that that could be trouble on certain nights for the Dukes. The only thing to keep in mind there is two of their three best low post scoring threats are the two guys that aren't playing right now. Mm-hmm. And Savrasov, who, let's be honest, basically sucked the first month of the season, has really come into his own the last three, four games, and he's finally starting to get those good post-up looks. So it's something that was a huge concern last year. I don't think it'll ever be a strength for this team, but it's a much smaller weakness than it probably seems at the moment. So for St. Joe's, I think we've talked enough about the way they play. They're going to shoot a ton of three-pointers and kind of live or die by that. But I I think what's a little bit underrated on some of their offensive struggles this year and what's kept them from being a truly terrific offense, they're bottom 50 in the country in offensive block rate and bottom 100 in offensive steal rate. So I, I feel like just maybe they're not the most physical offensive team. And if opposing defenses can just push them around a little bit more really like pressure them, try to force a lot of turnovers. That might be where the Hawks get into trouble. I I feel like where you're just letting them get off clean looks at the three-point line, that's where St. Joe's is going to be comfortable in beating you. So I I think just that's kind of been where they've struggled is not finishing it through contact at the rim, although they did a great job against that against Princeton. But, I mean, blocks and steals, if you can get those against St. Joe's, you're going to do a pretty good job shutting them down. I went to the other side, and as great as the defense has been, I think they're still vulnerable to the three-point barrage. They're one of the bottom 10 teams, or top 10, however you want to look at it, in terms of allowing the opponent to shoot a ton of threes. Everyone's just bombing away in St. Joe's games, and we saw it with Princeton, who kind of plays a more isolation style. And St. Joe's was ready for it. They went into that zone. They forced them to keep the ball moving around. But I think when you get a team that's going to really swing the ball on you, really try to expose that St. Joe's D and the fact that they don't have any truly elite guys out there, they're going to let you shoot a lot of threes. And on certain hot nights, those can end up being some really good looks that could bury the Hawks. I think that's definitely a concern just with how many three-pointers opponents are taking. Although I did think in the Princeton game, the Hawks did a good job of adapting. I mean, really, it was both the first the first the and second half. Great. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I mean, they gave up like five threes in the first six minutes of the game, and it looked like it could be a long afternoon. And after that, I mean, they really started defending those shots a lot better. So I, I don't know. I, I think as long as, I mean, right now they're only allowing just under 30% on three-point attempts. So if it's a low percentage, I mean, they're still going to be susceptible to the bad nights when someone gets hot. But so far, that hasn't been a huge issue this year. Yeah, I mean, really boiling their two losses down to the simplest terms, they got killed in the three-point line in both those games. Mm-hmm. The Commerce game, they couldn't make any. In the Kentucky game, they were giving up a ton, 12 or 25 for the Wildcats. So yeah. if they're just going to get walloped, behind the arc on one side or the other they're probably going to lose that game 
All right, last one in this group, St. Bonaventure, who kind of like Duquesne, I, I feel like it's been, for the most part, a well-rounded team. And I'm also just kind of interested to see how these stats balance out because the Bonnies have played, for the most part, a really weak schedule outside of Auburn. I, I think for me, it's kind of your point about Duquesne getting them in foul trouble. It's been an issue for Chad Venning this year with him just not being able to stay on the court a ton. and. When I look at St. Bonaventure, it's overall a pretty solid defense, but they're slightly below average in allowing opponents to get to the rim and scoring at the rim. So I think once you get Venning out of the game, that gets a lot worse. And Noel Brown's doing fine. He's not a great shot blocker, though. So I I just think it's keeping Venning off the court for extended periods of time is where the Bonnies could be in trouble. I looked at it at the rim on the other side of the court. And as I mentioned at the beginning, all of these teams chuck a lot of threes, but I think that the other three teams are just a little bit more able to adapt offensively, especially because with Holmes at Dayton specifically and Grant at Duquesne, you have two guys that get to the foul line constantly. Grant's 10th in the A-10 in free throw rate and second in free throw percentage. You're, it's just basically an automatic. You're going to get anywhere from probably six to 10 points from Day-Day Grant at the line in any given game. St. Bonaventure is not getting that. The only two guys who are basically shooting any twos are Venning and Adams Woods. And even Daryl Banks, he's at slightly over three two-point attempts a game. He's shooting great from the line on 23 free throw attempts for the season. It, this is a problem that I talked about all the way back in October. I think this is a team that just, I don't know if it's structural at this point or if these guys just don't feel like they're good enough attackers, but they got all these talented perimeter guys who just are not making enough plays within 10 feet of the basket. That's true of Banks and of Pride, especially of Asamavu. I still don't know how to say Jan Farrell's proper name now. Barry Evans is never get into the rim like Moses Flowers doesn't really do it it's basically just Adams Woods yeah and I mean it is kind of crazy I didn't notice but I mean he's not even leading the team in free throw attempts that's Chad Venning who's 19 for 26 but yeah I mean your leader averaging only three three and a half free throw attempts that's not a ton and Charles Pritt is 13 in six games yeah, I mean, that's pretty far below what he was at at Bryant. So that is kind of interesting. I mean, overall, I think the offense has been has worked for the most part, and the Bonnies aren't turning the ball over as much this year. They're shooting a lot better. But yeah, that, that is something to keep an eye on. Just who do you trust at the end of games and who can create those plays and get to the line when it matters? All right. Trying to figure out how many questions we have left. We have an anonymous one. Those are always fun. And it comes down to a a, a little bit of an infamous team this year, St. Louis. And her question was, will Travis Ford be there next year after uh, seems like his seat may be getting a little bit warm on the Billiken bench? We've talked about this online, like offline, like four times already this season. And we have kind of different stances. I've been in the camp. I I just don't think it's going to happen. And part of it just being... If you're St. Louis's athletic department and you're actually competent, you had to look at where this year was going to go because 
even in March, this would not have been surprising. And to bring back Travis Ford basically should have been an endorsement that you're letting him rebuild. If you felt like he was going to come into the year with a super hot seat, you should have canned him already. I like to believe that this is a competent athletic department. You look at what they're doing in other sports, both of the soccers, women's basketball, those are good programs. They've been hiring good coaches in other sports. And honestly, saying it that way is an insult to Travis Ford, who's been a good coach up until this year. And I just really have always thought that unless they absolutely implode, we're talking like 14th, 15th, which for how much I've crapped on them this year, I still don't think it's going to happen. I think they're an upper echelon pillow fighter at this point. And unless that happened, I just assumed that Ford was going to stay. And then the win this weekend changed, started to change my thinking on this. Because unless you're Frank Martin, who just walks around aggressive in every facet of his life, if you feel secure in your job, you're not going after your fans at a press conference. That, to me, felt like a guy who, who is just on the defensive at this point. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I, I mean, I think we can say this is going to be St. Louis's worst season since Travis Ford took over. I mean, the first year they were terrible when he inherited a, a bad team. But I, I think part of their struggles are a little bit overblown just because of the fairly high bar they've set. And I, I don't want to say like super high barks. They're not making tournaments consistently, but they're still always picked near the top of the conference and finishing right in the middle of the double buy race. And even this year, I think if you're talking about the athletic director making that decision over the off season, I, I think he can just justify it and say, look, we were picked sixth. We're still getting respect around the league and people who know college basketball think we're still pretty good, even with a weaker roster. So I don't know the details of like the contract and what it would take to buy him out if St. Louis decided to move on. I, I would say it just really does depend on how the rest of the season goes. And if they do manage to finish in the middle of the pack, that's, I would think, enough to let him try to see this rebuild through. If it gets really ugly like it did when they lost to Southern Illinois by 39 points, then, I mean, more of those games, it's it gets harder to keep him around and you already know that the fan base is losing interest each time they have a bad game like that. All right. Tom Golder construction crew. So this guy will be working on the renovations kicking off at the end of March, I guess. Will the regular season champ be the tournament champ too? I, I'm going to say probably not just because last year was, Oh, wait, no, it wasn't. St. Bonaventure did it a couple seasons ago. So still doesn't happen super often. I'm going to say no, but this is hard to answer. Unless the tournament has been moved to UD Arena without my knowledge, history tells us absolutely not. I mean, if Dayton wins the regular season, then the answer is no, because they're not going to win the tournament. Also, if so. Duquesne wins the regular season, they've been pathetic in the eight yeah, tournament the last 15 years. They're even worse than Dayton, so <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that makes it difficult. And I mean, both of them definitely have a chance to win the regular season, so we'll, we'll see. All right, how about this question from Patrick? All A-10 name team. 
which I, I think always right has already been named the captain of the national all name team. But who are some other guys that we want to throw on here? I'll give two more here. Kobe Elvis, just the names of two different legends and different walks of life. <laughs> and then Day Day Grant, because just how many times in life have you met a man named Day Day? It is good. I, I think for Kobe Elvis, just because I, I always see him pop up on these and people lose their minds. I, I think I'm just so desensitized to it because I've watched him play for three years that his name just doesn't do anything for me. But you're probably right. That's a good one. Uh, the first guy I thought of after Always Right, I mean, Stretch Akinbola, like the name Stretch and a guy blocking 11 shots. That sounds like straight out of the 1950s, like an old school nickname, just a, a dominant low post player. I I got to go with him just for that nickname. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I tried to go with new guys in the conference. I think Xavier Brown, just the spelling of his name with the X and Z consecutive. That's a little bit under, underrated. I think Xavier's just a pretty common name. So that gets lost on people. So I, he'll be my uh, my freshman selection, we'll say, in addition to your picks. I'll add in, if someone made a movie about a New England hitman, couldn't the name be Matt Cross? Like, I could just see, like, oh, Jeremy Renner stars as Matt Cross, who's just going around just, like, killing mobsters in New Hampshire. Yeah. In the name of the Lord. <laughs> Wasn't what I was expecting, but I mean, you, you defended it pretty well, so I'll give you that one. All right. I, that is, I think, about all the questions. I, I did get one more, actually, that maybe we can end on. We missed the other have... half of Patrick's. Oh. oh, you're right. Ugliest game so far. That's actually a great question. I, I, I mean, think the obvious answers are St. Joe's Commerce and SLU Southern Illinois, but I, the worst, yeah. just the worst played basketball game I watched this year was LaSalle, Iowa, Maryland. Oh, that was garbage. That was bad. That was also a 630 standalone game. So I got to watch the last like 10 minutes of that pretty uninterrupted. <laughs> I, I also, going back to opening night, when Fordham beat Wagner in overtime, I think there were at I least... did not watch that game. Yeah, well, it was an 8 o'clock game, so I watched the whole second half. I, I think there were three threes that were banked in. And uh, there was a Wagner guy, too, who was... Now I need to look this up, and this can be our where he at for the day, but a former A-10 player was just dominating late in that game. It was... Uh... Ramir Moore, St. Joe's, where he at? He was in that game. See, I don't know. Fordham Wagner. Honestly, you could pick a lot of Fordham games, though. Yeah, I mean, that's, I'm pretty that's sure the... Fordham Abilene Christian was abominable, but I didn't watch that. Yeah, I, a lot of Fordham games I feel like haven't been available to watch. I think they've been on flow a couple times. I didn't know where to find the, the North Texas Yes Network game, I... so I might have just been under a rock. No, I don't think that was. I think you can only watch it as a New Yorker for some stupid ass reason. Okay, yeah, I, I didn't know if I was missing something, but I didn't see a second of that. The game-winning dunk was pretty great, though. I'll throw in a, a pre-candidate here. And this is the warning, because if I'm right about this, then Fordham's back to their old ways. But it just kind of feels like that Kids' Day Thursday noon game against Central Connecticut State 
has a chance to really just be an affront to the game of basketball. How many times has the kids stay game just been disgusting to watch? I mean, wasn't, was the VMI game in overtime, the kids stay? I believe so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I feel like by the end of the year, all of the ugliest games, we're just going to point to Fordham. All right. I, I had another question that wasn't on our list today, but what would you say is your biggest surprise team of the A-10 so far? And then also the biggest disappointment. The biggest disappointment, it, it's it's got to be Fordham, right? I think so. Because I still because... think VCU can fix this. Like the fact that Fordham just absolutely sucks offensively, it's honestly it's a bummer because I wanted them to be good this year. I wanted that program to continue to grow, and maybe they get back to it next year. But this is a this is a huge drop. Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm at the point that I'm wondering is Rose Thrill still going to be a big thing when that Friday when that Friday ten game against Duquesne rolls around in February? It might be back to old empty Rose Hill by that point. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at VCU, like they're not at full strength back yet, and I, I also just have no doubt. They might get Bamisil too. They're gonna be back though, like next year and the year after. They're gonna be a good program for years to come. Where Fordham, I mean, this was kind of their chance to keep the momentum going, and so far they haven't lived up to it. So, and I think some of the other bad teams like St. Louis, we already mentioned. There were a lot of warning signs going in, and I don't think their fans really were expecting much. So I would say Fordham there. I, I think biggest surprise, we, I think it has to be St. Joe's, just because people who claim to understand the A-10 were not believing in the Hawks. I, I think it was more like the national people who just saw their roster and knew about Asandico, like, that's why there was a little bit of hype around them, but anyone who's watched a lot of St. Joe's the last couple of years just had no faith that Billy Lang would back it up. And so far they have, and they've been a contender. So I, I think that's my answer. I think you can also give a little bit to Richmond here. I just thought they were going to be bad. And part of it is I was just kind of out on Neil Quinn as a star, but Jordan King is a legit all conference guy. Quinn's improved. Bigelow's better. Jai Bailey has become a significant contributor. And I'll tell I'll take this into one question that we haven't gotten to yet. From the Akil Spadone Stan account, most overrated and underrated teams at this point. Hmm. And this is why I asked, where is Richmond's perspective? Because people have brought them up as a potential contender. And I, I still don't think that's true. But I think they got a pretty good shot to get their way into the seven, eight, nine spots. And I thought that they were going to be closer to the bottom end of the pillow fight. So they're both, to me, overrated, but also surprisingly good. I guess I wasn't sure how to answer that. Like just going by perception of fans or like by analytics, like who's over underrated. I think that could drastically change the answer. Yeah, I, I kind of right now I just kind of feel like there's not a lot of overrated teams because the guy the teams that are really being hyped up are the ones who have proved it so far. I, I will say the one like, overrated. We don't have the UMass of last year right now. Yeah, although they're a hey, top hundred in the net, so maybe we do for some people. But 
I, I hate even saying this because I, I love their team and they're fun to watch. But GW a couple weeks ago was getting picked like top three by a lot of people at A10 yeah, Talk. And yeah, well, that was never so, okay. I'm like, pretty sure that like three of the people voting in that poll just literally don't watch games. I, I don't know. I Is mean, they've th- been th- that thing gets weird every week. It was it started to normalize this week, but I, I think the revolutionaries got knocked down a peg when they got blown out against South Carolina and then respected the military by taking Navy to overtime. But that was never a double by a team. I, I still I don't think they're a pillow fight team, although I mean, Ken I, I caught them at seven and eleven. They're on the bubble with that, though. I, I think people just kind of assume GW's better than they are, where I'd still, I still... I don't know. I think I might pick them in the pillow fight if I mapped it out. They'd be probably ninth or 10th. No higher than 500, I would say. Underrated to me, like, we've just stopped talking about VCU as a contender. They've lost, they've lost to some really good teams. I think they win the Memphis game if the wall doesn't foul out. And yeah. it also kind of opens up a scary thing for them that Roosevelt Wheeler's non-existent and Furman's fine, but like Toby Lawals might be too critical to this team right now. Where if they were to lose him, I might just punt on them entirely. But especially just with the fact that they're going to get Barstow back soon, they they might even get Bamasil at this point. Billups and Bell are getting better. Jason Nelson's in the right role. Like VCU is still very, very much dangerous. I guess the other team I'd want to throw out, and I don't know if I'd say underrated as much as just under the radar. And this is a shout out to the person asking us the question, but I feel like no one's talking about Davidson. And they're better than last year, which I sure didn't expect. They're on a nice little four-game winning streak, and... They still, believe it or not, they might have one of the best wins in the conference against Maryland, who isn't that good, but it's still a Big Ten win on a neutral court, and they even beat Charlotte, which never happens, especially on the road. So, I I don't know. I I think we've seen some good things out of Davidson the last couple weeks and and feel more confident in them than I did this time last year, where just wasn't sure how their conference season would play out. Yeah, I just kind of everywhere just see them somewhere in 7th through 10th, which just seems like the right spot for me. I, I think that's the most likely, but wouldn't completely throw them out as a like third or fourth place contender if things start breaking their way. If, in the if conference. Brizzy really starts to take a leap, it could be in play. One more, Matt Moderno asked us top three candidates for A-10 player of the year. And for me, it's Holmes, Reynolds, and then probably just Holmes again. Yeah, I mean, those are definitely the top two. I I think for Duquesne, like, would Grant and Clark just split votes too much? I think Data's probably just number three. Because I I think if you're not paying attention, you're just looking at the stats, you automatically just think that Grant's a notch better than Clark. It's not true, but... yeah. The fact that it's not true is something that is told by the eye test. I think it partially depends on which of these middle-of-the-pack teams ends up being a contender. Like, if it is Richmond, then it could be Jordan King. Or if it's George Mason, then it's going to be Keyshawn Hall. Or if VCU gets there, it could be Sholga. Like, I think it just... It's the two guys that we know are on good teams right now that have carried them. And then after that, I mean, we know... 
it will be someone from a contender that ends up in the discussion. I think the problem is if either Dayton or St. Joe's finishes top two, the only way that one of those guys isn't winning it is if they're second because because either VCU wins it and Shulga's incredible or Duquesne wins it and Grant's incredible. Because I don't think anyone's good enough on Bonaventure to win it even if they take the league. So mm-hmm. you're basically hoping that it's like, oh, Bonaventure wins the league, Duquesne finishes second, but we're having all this discourse as to whether or not it's Grant or Clark is the best player. And then, oh, GW or Richmond finishes third, and Bishop or King's stats are just so much better than everybody else's. Like, that's the only way, and that's way too many ifs. Yeah, I mean, when you map it out like that, and I I think part of it, too, I I think I would actually put Holmes in a tier of his own, just because Reynolds, he's been playing awesome, but with the other guards also playing better for St. Joe's, he isn't, I think his scoring's actually gone down this year, and I don't have it in front of me, but I just don't know if he'll have the eye-popping stats, even if St. Joe's wins the league and Dayton finishes second or something like that. I feel like Holmes just has that reputation on both ends of the court. If Dayton finishes first, do you see any conceivable scenario where Holmes plays most of the conference season and is not the player of the year? Because I don't. If they win the league, it's over. We're not even going to have a discussion about it. Yeah. I think that's fair unless... Kobe Brea shoots like 70% from three, which some games it feels like that could happen, but no, I, I don't think there is another option. All right, well, hopefully, did I miss any other questions? Because I, I did not have no one typed, although I do see it on here now. Did you, yeah, those there... were the fair, those were the first two we got there. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I believe them, that is all. All right. I guess any other final thoughts, or do we want to get into the net at all and compare how it's been stacking up to the last few years. Cause I will say quite a bit better for the eight hand things are looking up. Yeah. It's not much like it's like we said, it's a really weak week here. The weekend came without any bad losses, but also really without any spectacular wins. It was just a lot of teams taking care of the business that they needed to. So We'll look ahead to Saturday, which is a, a, a loaded, loaded day. Yeah, I mean, really, it's I would say right now for the A-10, like if we want to treat this as finals weeks, like Saturday is the final exam for the conference and they're going to need to get some big wins to get that A for the semester. But just wanted to get in real quick because I, I think people have been sleeping a little bit, maybe just from the lack of quality wins and. Right now, St. Joe's with the two Q1 wins over Villanova and Princeton for the entire conference. But I mean, the last two full seasons, there's in the non-conference, there's been one quad one win last year, two, two years ago. I, I think the biggest key, though, that you hit on the lack of bad losses, that's been a huge benefit to the league. Right now, the A-10 is 56 and five in quad four games compared to this time last year. 56 and 15 and 51 and 14 two years ago so that's just been a huge benefit and I I think part of the reason even though the league doesn't have a ton of great wins right now there's a ton of Q2 and Q3 games in conference play where whoever does go 15 and 3 or 16 and 2 I 
they're going to have no problem getting in the tournament. I think even 14 and four, as long as it's someone that has a decent non-conference, they're going to be in pretty decent shape. And the net also does have the A-10 as the power eighth best conference right now, which is a lot better than the last two years. Last year, it was 12th at this point in the season. But let's get in. What what are the, the first games on Saturday that you wanted to get into? Well, I just want to mention at Duquesne just popped back into being a Q1 game today, which also joins at the Bonnies, at St. Joe's, at George Mason, and at Dayton. And neutral side against Dayton would all be Q1 games right now. Yeah, which last year it was pretty much at VCU as your quad one game, and then after that you're out of luck. So, And also right now, too, there's only, I believe, three... Q4 games on the road, which are Fordham, St. Louis, and Rhode Island. Or those actually might be Q3. I don't have them. Rhode Island's the lowest at 237. So yeah, I actually think that would be Q3 on the road, which is, that's a huge benefit, only having three teams sub 200. Yeah, and like you said, last year was pretty bad. And the year before, the only reason that it even got to be decent going into conference plays because Davidson got so lucky that there was a COVID cancellation. They got to play Alabama and beat them. Yeah. And I mean, that, that was the win. That, much that was the win that basically gave the league a chance to get in that large bid. So I guess into Saturday though, I mean, a couple huge chances for the A-10 to get a few more of those Q1 wins. A couple of them. I mean, I think it's fair to say the A-10 will be a pretty big underdog. Uh, LaSalle, Miami, Fordham St. John's and I'd even throw in right now Florida Atlantic's 15th in the country and they play St. Bonaventure on a neutral court those are all going to be tough I I would say St. Bonaventure just the way they're playing the last three or four games has maybe the best chance of pulling an upset and maybe could do a little bit to offset the Canisius loss but I mean those are just the types of games where the A-10 really hasn't pulled a huge upset this year and a couple big chances over this weekend where maybe even if it's a team that won't get an at-large bid, it could boost the conference as a whole. In terms of the combination of opportunity and the ability to win the game, is there a bigger game in the entire A-10 non-conference than Dayton-Cincinnati? Cincinnati's 26 in net right now. Going into a Big 12 schedule where if they just go like 10 and 8 in conference, they're going to be top 30 no matter what. And this is a chance to get a really big Q1 win in, I don't know if Net does semi-away like Ken Palm does. It's in the limits of the city of Cincinnati. It's an away game. It's just not in their gym. And this is a chance for the best team in the A-10 to go get a massive signature win. Like if they win this game, they walk into A10 play squarely in the middle of the bubble equation. I think that's fair. And I, I think part of the discussion too with Dayton, even though right now they're sitting at 0 2 in Q1 games, St. John's and SMU are kind of on the doorstep of elevating themselves. St. John's did just lose a game to Boston College, so they dropped a little bit further out of the range. But right now, SMU at 79, only four spots out of being a Q1 game on the road. I do think it's fair to talk about 
Dayton is having a tournament resume if they do win the game against Cincinnati. Even if they lose, they're still not in terrible shape where if they won the regular season outright and don't lose at Tom Gold Arena, that might be enough. I don't know. I'm feeling optimistic right now just with the the number of quality games in the A-10 that we haven't had the last couple of years. And I think people have maybe gotten a little bit or forgotten about what it means to go 14 and four in a good A-10 where last year VCU went 15 and three and it didn't matter because the, the half of them were Q3 and Q4 games this year. That's not going to be the case. It's the only time it, it hasn't mattered. It, the only other two I'm taking, I'm taking a look at here. UMass plays West Virginia in a semi home game. WVU stinks this year, but once again, they're in the big 12. So they're going to end up with a decent, net number so long as they just don't go like two and 16 in conference and that's a winnable game against the team that can just kind of elevate UMass's status and then VCU you're at home beating Temple in Richmond's really not going to do much for them but can you guys just not lose a crappy game to Temple two years in a row thank you and hey for the price of $2, $2, you can head over to Schaefitz Arena and watch a Q2 home game against Louisiana Tech. Could be back-to-back quality wins for St. Louis, and you know we'll forget about all these Travis Ford discussions that we've had. Yeah, I just wasn't counting that one. I figured they hey, weren't they, getting that after they beat Hofstra. Hey, they beat Hofstra. You never know. What is Hofstra? They play Duke tonight. They were, to check. they were they were winning at the half, and they then they got annihilated. Oh, almost a huge win for the A-10, who is 2-0 against the Pride. All right, any other final takeaways or thoughts from our mailbag? No, uh, just that as I flip around, congratulations to St. Bonaventure and Richmond, whose win over wins over Siena look a lot better now, as the Saints have gotten themselves out of dead last in the net. That honor now belongs to winless Mississippi Valley State. Congratulations. All right. Well, it is going to be a huge Saturday. Hopefully the A-10 gets a couple big wins, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it next time. But yeah, hopefully we just continue a, a pretty solid non-conference for the league and can't wait to get back into conference play. Yep. We'll see what happens. If LaSalle can get themselves to 20 wins, it, the road starts with them beating Miami on Saturday. That does. I mean, the Fran Dunphy factor. You never want to doubt that guy. All right. That does it for this episode of the Three Bid League podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars on iTunes. You can send us your comments on Twitter at Three Bid League Pod, on Blue Sky by the same name, or if you prefer, shoot us an email, Three Bid League at gmail.com. Those are all the number three, not the word. Come on. You don't really think that we would spell that out do you be sure to come back next week we will probably have our special holiday episode for you and hopefully this is a great saturday